Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Decades ago, like 30, 40 years ago, the way addictions treatment was, it was very heavy-handed. It wasn't very supportive. It was a lot more, you need to stop doing this. You need to do this instead. And MI took a very um, significant shift. It creates this collaborative partnership between the therapist and the clients in a way to really identify goals together and work together to getting to those goals. That was Dr. Nadine Mastrolio on Psychologist Off the Clock. what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been concerned about someone's drinking or other kinds of behavioral problems and wanted them to change, maybe you've wondered about what the most effective approaches to take might be, then this episode is for you. There is a really cool research approach that's called motivational interviewing, and for those of you who haven't heard about it, this episode really goes into what it is and the research behind it and also how we can take advantage of it when there are concerning behaviors that are in front of us uh, in the people that we care about. So um, I'm really excited to share this interview with Dr. Nadine Mastrolia, who's an associate professor at Binghamton University and an expert in motivational interviewing. Yeah, I find motivational interviewing a really useful approach. I mean, in my personal life, I'd say when there's something that is going on that I'd like to see somebody else change, Um, but especially in my work. I work in a healthcare setting, and I think the old school model when you wanted someone to change a health-related behavior, you know, take their medication, stop smoking, lose weight, what have you, the old school model was that the expert tells the person you know, here's what you need to change. And then the the expert gets really frustrated and it doesn't understand why they come back a few months later and nothing has changed. It's like, well, I told you to change this and you didn't. Well, that's because that model doesn't really work. And so now there's much more of this focus on this more effective approach. And instead of being the expert, it's more about exploring, working with the patient, listening, and trying to help the patient come up with her, his or her own reasons and motivation for changing. And this is much more powerful. It's more effective. There's a lot of research supporting that. And also, I think it acknowledges that the person might have good reasons for doing what they're doing and for not changing and might feel a lot of ambivalence about changing. And I think by exploring that ambivalence, it's much more compassionate and effective. And usually people, I mean, in my own life, I think about it, 
I usually know some of the stuff that I'm doing is probably not a good idea, but it's really hard to change. And I think this approach just really acknowledges that, that we all probably know some things we should change, but the change part is really difficult. I love how you're talking about exploring ambivalence because that's often not our instinct when, when we want someone to change a behavior, we often are just want to tell them all the reasons why that behavior is bad or why it's ruining their life or, you know, and that it's actually really important to have a place for people to say, actually, this, this is the reason why I do it. And this is what I'm getting out of it. So then they're more open to explore the discrepancy of what are some of the things I like about it and what are some things I don't like about it. And I think Nadine gets a really good job in this in this interview talking about what that looks like in the therapy room but then also would give you some suggestions for how you could use some open-ended questions and with someone that you love or if you're a clinician how to uh, to bring this up in your clinical work I, I think in my background with eating disorders it's really the only way to go because people will get more and more stuck in defending their eating disorder, the more you try and push them to change it. And I've seen that firsthand a lot of times. And I think with practice, it, it actually really is nice to see the, see the person that you want to make, you want to help make changes, it, them to do it for themselves and to come up with some of the ideas themselves. Yeah. And this is a little bit of a foreshadowing, but I talked with Nadine a lot about how I use some of these strategies in couples therapy. It's often the case that couples will come in and one partner will really want the other person to make changes, and sometimes both do. <laughs> um, and often the way that we come at our partner is is in a very ineffective way where we're sort of demanding change. And motivational interviewing gives us some really useful strategies in approaching our partners or other people that we care about in a way that doesn't end up locking them into a defensive or kind of attacking position um, because they feel like they're being attacked uh, themselves. And so, um, you know, I think that there's so much applicable here. Of course, motivational interviewing was developed for therapists in a clinical room, in a clinical setting with patients, but it's really so useful in, in personal relationships of all kinds. So I think this approach is really helpful, and I loved um, how Nadine described it and, and sort of described some of the research behind it. So we hope you'll enjoy this episode and find the treatment approaches and research ideas described here useful. Hi, this is Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, and I'm excited today to talk with Dr. Nadine Mastrolio, who's an associate professor at Binghamton University. Nadine's primary areas of expertise and research are on a treatment called motivational interviewing, or MI. She teaches MI and examines how within-session behaviors during brief MI sessions predict behavior change over time. I'm particularly excited to have Nadine on because her expertise in teaching therapists how to do therapy and her research focusing on how therapy works is really illuminating, but also just really contagious um, in terms of her enthusiasm for doing the research and the treatment, as well as the teaching components. Nadine and I actually met during our postdoctoral fellowship, so I know firsthand how her passion for research and teaching is infectious and gives a whole new and inspiring perspective on what it means to be in the role of therapist, teacher, and researcher. So I'm hoping that some of our listeners who are interested in this kind of professional path might get a lot out of this interview, and those who are interested in the content of Nadine's research might learn a bit about MI and about behavioral change in the therapy session. Welcome, Nadine. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
So Nadine, I think that your path into your professional current position as associate professor is a really unique one and one that allows you to do your work in really amazing ways. So I was wondering if you could share with us your path into uh, research and also into educating and coaching therapists. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say my um, path is a bit on the windy um, road, if you will, because it's not the traditional path that that I think most people have taken. So I I actually um, went as an undergrad, I played basketball in college and then decided I was going to be a college basketball coach. So spent seven years as a college basketball coach at a couple different Division One universities, um, both in the Northeast and out in California. While I was coaching at the University of San Diego, I started my master's degree program in college counseling and um, decided to leave coaching and took a job in the alcohol and other drug office to start working with college students who got in trouble for drinking or smoking marijuana on campus. And so as a part of that process, I realized that I really just wanted to be a therapist. Um, but more importantly, I wanted to train other people to be therapists because I actually felt like if I could help one student, that's great. But if I taught people how to be really good therapists, they could help all those extra people and I'd be helping way more people. I know it's a very kind of idealistic viewpoint, but it, it just seemed like as somebody who really, you know, is a teacher and as a coach, if I could do that for helping therapists learn how to become better therapists, I get to help more people. Um, so I applied to Penn State, um, went and got my PhD in a degree called Counselor Education Supervision, which is also not the traditional path to becoming a researcher, um, but then um, fell in love with research because I started working on some um, federally funded grants training undergraduate peer counselors to deliver alcohol interventions with heavy drinking college students and learn the skills of research in a way that um, I had no idea. So ended up going to Brown University and meeting you um, and getting to be a postdoc with you for a couple years. That and was then, so fun. We worked know, really was, hard, but we also had a lot of fun. <laughs> we did. We had um, some really amazing, in my experience, um, opportunities to learn from each other in different ways because I mm -hmm. learned a ton about the type of stuff you do as well, which has really influenced even the way I see working together with two people, um, which is, is also important from an MI standpoint. Yeah, and so then I just started doing research and got the chance to work with some really cool um, people out in the field of addictions research, was trained in how to train people in motivational interviewing, and then became the standard trainer at Brown University um, through the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Studies to essentially train all of the therapists that were on all of the projects delivering MI interventions. Um, and then from that point forward, I've kind of stuck with it. Um, I came to Binghamton as a faculty member, this is my fourth year here, but have been able to do all the same work, um, mainly because MI is, um, it really kind of filters through everything we do just in communication skills. And I'm learning really interesting ways to, to try to adapt it into different populations. Well, it's such, it's such a perfect fit for you because it's sort of, um, takes advantage of all these interests and passions and skill sets that you have. So you get to do research on how to most effectively train and then learn how to um, improve upon the training, but also actually look at how, how the behavioral change gets impacted over time from therapist's point of view, all the way out to like the individual's drinking behavior or whatever other behaviors you're looking at. So there's a lot of teaching, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of therapy involved, and you get to sort of be a part of all of that, which is so amazing. 
The other thing that I'll just mention, and I remember this from conversations that you and I have had way back when, is that both you and I have sort of um, an interest in both research and practice because we we both have this idealistic vision of being able to have a greater impact through the research and through training people who do the work, but both of us find such gratification from the one-on-one sense of making a difference. And it's really an amazing, I mean, your degree is, is a little bit different than mine, but both of our degrees really allow us to do both. I mean, the research allows you to have an impact on the wider field and on more people, but then the ability to teach or to, to offer therapy in the therapy room gives you this sense of, you know, this is where the magic happens. And it's really just sort of that uh, more immediate gratification of like, oh, I'm making a difference. Absolutely. You, you have those, those moments sometime in a session with somebody and you can just hear um, the shift in their voice or hear how things make sense to them. So before we go on, just because you and I have been talking about MI and for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with what motivational interviewing is, I wonder if you could, with your wealth of knowledge, give us a bit of a background on, on what motivational interviewing is and, and what it might look like. And then we can talk about some of your research. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, for folks that um, I suspect a lot of people have heard of what MI is and, and nowadays you can um, find trainings kind of around actually the world, to be honest with you, um, that'll give you a brief introduction. But um, it's a it's a therapy approach essentially that um, has come out of the addictions treatment field. Um, it was developed uh, by Bill Miller and Stephen Rolnick. Um, they wrote a book. I think their first book came out in like 1992 that kind of showed what this approach was. And it was really a shift from past addictions treatment. Decades ago, like 30, 40 years ago, the way addictions treatment was, it was very heavy handed. It wasn't very supportive. It was a lot more, you need to stop doing this. You need to do this instead. And MI took a very um, significant shift um, from that, from the past treatment. And what it really does, um, at least how I like to describe it to the people I I get to train and, and talk to about it, it creates this collaborative partnership between the therapist and the clients in a way to really identify goals together and work together to getting to those goals. Um, now, that seems a lot like regular therapy, right? I mean, when I think of what we do as a regular therapist, if, you know, if you're not doing MI, um, but there's a, a piece of it that I think um, really focuses on what, what is defined as this MI spirit. Essentially, there's these kind of four tenets, if you will, of MI spirit. Um, and it's really accepting the client um, for who they are, where they're at. Um, even if you don't agree with their behaviors, even if you don't think that the things they're doing are in their best interest, it's still accepting them for where they are. Um, offering some autonomy, really letting the person know that it is their choice to kind of make changes or not make changes, and you're still going to accept them no matter what. Um, but then there's this kind of collaboration um, that I, that I think for me clearly fits kind of from a coaching personality of, of really wanting to work with somebody around how can we come, how can we identify a common goal and how can I help you get to that? And, and so how I look at it, it is very strengths based. Um, it really looks at people do have the skills to kind of get to their goals. Um, sometimes they get clouded, sometimes they get kind of buried, uh, but it's my job as the therapist to kind of help them continue to believe in themselves that they can kind of move forward, that they can make those shifts. Um, I can give them, I can offer help and I can help offer guidance. Uh, and then in the end that the decisions that they make, um, they will know they made for themselves and then they become a bit more salient. Um, 
you know, I, I use the example uh, when I do my trainings of part of our job is to help them help themselves, right? Um, you help them learn that they have the skills and to, to start using those skills um, and then believe in themselves. So there's, there's a lot of tenants, I think, um, around MI that really just bring together kind of essentially the idea of how the, the therapist and the client can work together in a collaborative partnership towards working towards a common goal um, and then kind of checking in on that goal over time, um, knowing that it may have to shift and change and it won't be perfect, but that, that that's okay and that's just a part of the process. Yeah, I mean, there's so much about MI that I think is, it, it just sort of feels intuitive, but I think it's so helpful to make some of those tenets really explicit. And it kind of goes, I mean, it's sort of in contrast to, you were kind of mentioning like the way that we used to conduct uh, interventions for individuals with various problems, including alcohol problems or other substance use problems. And there was this, um, there's this sort of common myth, I think, that still persists of, you know, getting a group of family members together and doing an intervention where you tell the person with the problem about all the, you know, all the things that you see that have gone wrong. And what's so interesting is that the science very clearly suggests that doesn't work, but it yeah, sort of... not do that. Yeah. <laughs> so getting a whole group of people together and telling somebody who's got a substance use problem uh, that they've got a problem does not work. So that's, that's a good myth to bust. Instead, Absolutely. what the science supports is this is this approach that is more accepting, where you recognize that somebody who's struggling with substances um, has autonomy, has choice, and that if you sort of accept them where they are, that there's a lot more um, opportunity for movement to happen. So in other words, when you get together with somebody as a team against the problem, as opposed to when you sort of uh, get on top of them and sort of pressure them to make changes. And I see Absolutely. that a lot in the couples therapy room. You and I were just talking about that before we started this episode, um, be before I started the recording, that uh, what uh, what traditional behavioral couples therapy used to do is to really focus on behavior change, sort of the therapist pressing for change. And I think it really um, was shown through a lot of the studies that were done that there was limitations in how effective that those kind of, pro of approaches could be. And eventually, um, some of the researchers started incorporating some of these more acceptance-based modules into the treatment, and they found that there was a lot more power within the intervention because it was less focused on change. And I see that between partners a lot, that when somebody is sort of coming at when one partner's coming at the other and saying, you need to do this, people get really locked and they get really mm -hmm. resistant. They get really defensive. But when mm -hmm. a partner's able to say, you know, I accept you for who you are. I see that there's pros and cons or reasons that you might do that, even if I don't prefer it. There's a lot more breathing room for that person to say, you know, I, I hear you too. And I see the way that you're viewing my behavior. There is a reason that I'm doing it, but but now I can sort of look at it together with you as opposed to feeling like you're kind of coming down on me in a very um, critical or demanding way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not adversarial, right? I think it's we, we do everything in our power to not try to make um, the client feel at all like we're judging them. I mean, you know, as therapists, we are trained to be non-judgmental. I, I get that there's times that we can't help. I mean, judgment happens. But it's our job to really kind of check that at the door and know that I, although I may not make those same choices that that person is making, I understand that they've made that choice and I have to accept that they've made that choice. I need to not judge that choice and work with it to try to figure out, all right, 
how can we kind of take a different look at that? How can we maybe make a shift? How would you like this to end differently next time? And what ways can we get there? Um, and I think that the piece, and, and again, a lot of this is because I've, I've, I've been listening to so many tapes over the last like 10 years, um, hundreds of, I don't know, maybe a thousand by now. I'm not sure how many tapes I've listened to, but, um, but one of the things I, I hear all the time is when a therapist doesn't come back at the clients and judge them and doesn't kind of almost like raise the game to be a bit more adversarial. The client is almost surprised by that because they're, they're ready for it. Their whole life, they've been ready for somebody to come at them. And by us not coming at them in that way, it almost invites them in um, to be more of a, a partner, more of a team member. And so I think there's an, I, I can, I can see it. I can feel it happen. Um, and there's this natural shift where, and you can almost see it from a body language standpoint, right? Like when you're sitting across from a client and they're kind of pented up and they're maybe kind of sitting in their chair very straight. And then as that shift happens, they start leaning towards you. You know, you've got them kind of at least engaged in a different way. Um, the defensive client will sit backwards and stay as far away from you as they can. Um, the kind of more engaged and open client shifts more towards you in a way that you can see that, all right, I think we're at least joining, right? And there's there's some great videos that I use for my trainings. Um, there's actually one using the horse whisperer, which is literally a man training a horse. It's actually called Join Up. It's probably the best training video I've ever used for training therapists. And it's uh, there's a small point where Monty Roberts, who's the original horse whisperer, um, works with a horse that's never been trained to do anything. And he walks through with this process of really showing how the horse is scared and intimidated and doesn't understand. And when he presses the horse away, the horse runs. And when he allows the horse to kind of do its own thing and become more comfortable and they, it joins in and it allows him to put a saddle on him. Um, and so it's, I mean, I've, I've used that training video and it's interesting to watch, especially when I've trained master's level clinicians in classes to watch the experience of like, that's what I want my clients doing. I know my clients are going to come in not wanting to do the work. They're going to be anxious of not doing it. But within, you know, a session, I want them to at least be open-minded to the idea of us working together. And so it's a, it's an amazing process to watch. I love listening to it on tape. Um, clearly I love doing it as well, but I do more of the listening than I do of the doing right now, just from a job standpoint. So yeah, there's lots of ways that I think the way you describe the couple stuff and the um, acceptance piece, that that is exactly what it is. It's it's all just accepting people for where they're at and knowing that people will shift over time. You just have to give them the support and the ability to think that they can actually do it. Yeah, and one of the other one of the classic exercises that I used to do in the um, motivational interviewing uh, treatment package in a smoking cessation study that I was on, um, which I think fits in really well with this, is the sort of pros and cons exercise. That, and this is just kind of an example I think to bring this idea to light that when you're talking about um, in this case smoking. Rather than saying, you know, you know that it's bad for you, right? So let's talk about what to do. Instead, where we would start with um, the participants or the patients, as the case may be, um, was, would be to say to them, you know, 
you smoke, and, and so there's probably a reason that you smoke, and there's probably a very good reason that you smoke. So let's talk about the reasons that you do. Um, what do you get out of it? What, what keeps you smoking? Because, you know, there's certainly a lot of people probably telling you it's not a good idea, and, and you continue. And, and let's just accept that, you know, there's some very good reasons that you might persist in this Absolutely. behavior. You know, without judgment of yourself, there's certainly no judgment coming from me. And then we would really go go through them. And then we would talk about, well, what are the reasons that – you sort of struggle with this decision or what are the reasons that you might sort of reconsider it? And we would go through those and, and depending on, you know, sort of how many pros and how many cons we would sort of think about, you know, where are you at with, you know, wanting to make a change and really just allowing them to kind of guide and, and let you know sort of what functions the behavior serves and where they would prefer it to be different. And it really is a much more supportive stance than kind of saying, you know, you've read the literature, haven't you? You know, you know, I know and you know that it's not good for you. And that kind of backs people into a, into a corner. So, so that different approach of saying, you know, it's okay that you do this, right? There's reasons that you do and there's reasons that you might want to stop. But let's kind of in an open way, in a non-judgmental way, just explore together. Yep. That's, and that's exactly what we do. And that's why I think the reason I think MI works so well for so many other health behaviors. So it's obviously not just in the world of addictions. And I mean, like you mentioned, in smoking cessation studies, or smoking cessation treatment, I guess it doesn't have to be a research study necessarily. Um, you know, but you've got alcohol use, you've got um, marijuana use, but we've done it with um, reducing HIV risk behaviors. Um, and that's been, we've been very successful in a, in a study doing that. A good friend of mine and colleague has been doing it with training dermatologists, how to have conversations around some protective behaviors for people that have had past melanoma and or other skin cancer risk. And what she learned from that is, you know, a physician is very often, they will give you the talk. Like they will tell you, you know, you need to wear sunscreen. You know, you should be wearing sunscreen. Well, like all of us know we should probably wear sunscreen when we go out. But like you just described, what's the reason I'm not wearing sunscreen? And how do I get myself there? So when I do my trainings, I'm often using the example of, it's not so much that, I, you know, that I don't want to do something. I need you to want to want to do something, right? So it's not that I... I know I, I want to wear sunscreen. I want to not get sunburned. I get all that. But I need to want to want to do it in order for me to actually do it. Um, and that's that hook piece that we really look for in the sessions with the client using MI is what is it that's going to get the person to want to do the behavior? Um, it's not like, why aren't you doing it? It's more of like, for what reason will you do it? And that's that exploration piece that you literally just talked about. And that's the part that I think also allows that collaboration. I don't think people are typically expecting those kinds of conversations. They're expecting to be told what to do. And instead, we take a very different approach of like, help me understand what's going on. You know, tell me about what made you dis to decide to have that extra drink last night. Um, what made you decide to buy the pack of cigarettes? Because um, I know last time we talked that you weren't planning on it. Just let me under help me understand what that was, a what kind of went in through your mind in that process. As soon as you do that, it it lowers this kind of anxiety of being told what to do, and I think it it has it has to create a partnership. Um, I, I I can't see how that doesn't create a partnership, um, and I do believe that's what I hear on these tapes. That's what I've seen with my own clients, um, and that's why it's such a great approach for so many different things um, because it doesn't have to be just talking to a client who has an alcohol use issue or a person who's trying to stop smoking. I mean, literally, it can be about like wearing sunscreen. It can be about brushing your teeth. 
It can be about taking medication when, you know, you think of a lot of adolescents that are struggle taking their medications for whatever reason. Sometimes it's because they're adolescents and they forget. Other times because they just don't want to do what their parents tell them. Um, right? It's like, how do you get people to want to do that? And so MI has the ability to at least get you out the gate <laughs> in some ways moving in that direction is, is kind of how I look at it. And why I think it's so applicable to so many different topics, um, which is why I why I love it so much, but also I, I see it working so well in so many different contexts. Yeah. And of course, my mind always goes to the couple's context because I think that, you know, that idea of giving your partner um, a sense of your acceptance, uh, a lot of autonomy, and then just offering them open curiosity just works so much better than telling them, you know, you're doing it badly or you're hurting me and you need to stop, um, which is, I think, where a lot of partners go when they're really frustrated with the behavior that they're seeing. And it makes all the sense in the world that you get frustrated. But I think that some of these techniques that you talk about from MI are actually just useful in any kind of relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, it's interesting because, you know, we, when I was thinking about um, what we we're going to talk about today, it's, you know, when you read the MI book, it's, you're going to read stuff and be like, I already do that stuff. I already use reflections. I already ask open-ended questions and all these, what are considered micro skills of the therapy process, right? We, we learn them just as people in clinical training programs. Um, and that's why I think the, the one piece that does offer a bit more of a shift um, beyond this collaboration project part, because like we've talked about, that's kind of the goal in a lot of therapy approaches, right, is to be a partner with your client. Um, but the other part is MI allows you to be a bit more directional um, because one of the pieces around MI is, you know, in a regular therapy session, it can go in a lot of different directions. Um, not saying that that's wrong, but when you're specifically doing MI, you are goal focused. And our job as a therapist is to always kind of bring it back to that goal, right? And that's the piece that I think um, often we forget. Um, and, and I think for like an early novice therapists, it's a bit harder because you, you, it's not a bad thing to follow your clients and to, to kind of understand where their perspective is. But we also know as therapists that sometimes our clients don't want to talk about the stuff that they really need to be talking about. And it's our job to kind of make sure that we kind of hone back in on that. So um, what's great about the, some of the research I do actually is I, I do a lot of coding of sessions. So not only am I listening and supervising or coaching therapists, but I, I code them and I break down the therapy sessions in ways so that I can understand what a therapist says, what a client says, and you actually get a score for direction and a five, meaning that you were directive doesn't mean you like didn't listen to what the client said. It means that you were able to keep the session on track to move towards goals um, rather than allowing the client to distract and not continue to focus on their goals. So those are some important, I think, distinctions of how MI does separate itself a little bit. Um, and the reason I think MI has been able to be adapted into a lot of more brief approaches, um, I mean, therapy has become less uh, expansive. I don't know. I, I mean, the average client... Yeah, it's no longer five times a week, right. an hour sitting on your therapist's couch. I right. mean, and who's got the time and the money for that anyway. Right. And and it's so we're looking in the research world for things that where you get a lot more bang for your buck. That's where most of the federal funding comes Literally. in yep. because we want things to be more efficient, more effective. Yeah. And I think that's the piece where MI has, has really also moved into a lot of the directions of a lot of the research we do because of that. Um, there's there's a, a structured coding system. So you can 
evaluate it and see if the person who's supposed to be doing MI is actually doing MI um, or if they're doing their own version of MI, which might not be adherent to the actual MI that they were maybe trained to do. Um, but it also allows us to, to move these into um, evidence-based, you know, manualized treatments where uh, you use the MI as the structure of how you work with the client, and then you can incorporate that into different behavioral change approaches. Um, you know, like I mentioned, we obviously do it with alcohol and other substances, but I've done an indoor tanning study where I worked with um, undergraduate female college students um, to get them to consider not going indoor tanning before spring break. And it worked. Using an MI framework, we created a motivational interviewing brief intervention around indoor tanning and the potential risks around indoor tanning. And the students who got the MI session didn't tan as much as the students who didn't get the MI session. Um, and it was it was actually a pretty cool study I did in grad school. I haven't clearly followed up with that one. <laughs> um, well, you, you're in a lot of different directions. <laughs> that and it's, yeah. Um, but it using the same tenets, right, of how do we get right. students to do something maybe that would be in their best interest without telling them to go do it. Because yeah, as soon as we tell somebody to do something, there's that reflex of wanting to do the exact opposite of what yep. somebody yeah. said to do. So. Yeah. Well, I think that's such a great example of, of how and why MI is so effective. It's also a, a nice example for listeners who aren't sort of familiar with the research on psychotherapies, what, what we actually do as researchers. So I think a lot of consumers are just not really familiar with the idea that uh, therapies can go through large controlled research trials, and that's what you're very much involved in, Nadine. And I think that that is just a good piece of information, that there are therapies that have a lot of evidence backing from from research that's been conducted in, in large trials to show how and why they work and um, in what form forms they work in. And there are lots of therapists who don't follow the research who aren't necessarily um, doing scientifically backed treatment. And so it's kind of an interesting piece of information for cons for consumers who mm -hmm. might be interested in uh, finding out more about treatments that have a little bit of scientific backing. Yeah, and am I, um, I mean, I remember when I first started doing trainings, you know, you would do a search of motivational interviewing in like Google or something. And, you know, there'd be like 93 citations. There are, I can't, the thousands of citations around using motivational interviewing anymore. And the amount of, it's just exploded. And I mean that in a good way of um, far reaching access to different populations, to different communities, different populations um, in ways that I think has been really important and interesting. Um, I've been working, um, especially over the last four or five years in, in the trainings that I do with different groups to really help people embody this spirit of what it is and not worry so much about the skills that, you know, it seems you have to check off boxes to do things. Um, I think if you can embrace what we've talked about earlier about the spirit and the acceptance and the unconditional regard, um, a lot of the, the general beliefs that even Carl Rogers had, you know, early on. Yeah, so he was the humanistic sort of Absolutely. empathic guy. He really emphasized just positive regard for his client, and that was really at the core of all of his treatment yeah. approaches. And it's similar. MI um, owns that, and they will refer to that as it's this unconditional kind of acceptance of people, um, person-centered approach, humanistic therapy. And so um, I think if we can help people at least understand that aspect of it, the skills do come. I mean, and and I know you and I, you and I've had this conversation before that I really think it's important that the skills are um, trained well. Um, you know, it's a, it's a 
as I mentioned earlier, it's I'm I'm a believer in coaching and helping people learn the skills so that when they're faced with a challenging client, they have something to look back on and they have the skill set in their back pocket to immediately go to despite what could be actually happening in a session. Yeah. So one of the areas of your research, so you, you, um, made some mention of the research studies that you have in a couple of different areas. And I want to get into those. But first, I wanted to ask a specific question about your research on how in-session interactions are predictive of behavioral outcomes. Because as a private practice clinician in part of my professional life, um, I'm so interested in that research because it is really important to know that there are certain things that really are predictive of behavioral outcomes that happen in the therapy room. And then there's certain things that really aren't. And I think that's a really core and critical area of research. And it's, it's so cool that you're so heavily invested in it. And, and I think that um, I would be delighted if you would share some of the yeah. research that you've done in that area. Yeah, I've been really lucky to work with some um, pretty amazing folks, um, both through Brown and, and beyond Brown at this point, um, where we we listen to these sessions, um, these MI-based interventions, and we honestly, we break down what people say in sessions. So we will splice up a 50-minute session into utterances, which are essentially what they're small pieces of a sentence, and code them. Um, now, mind you- That sounds exhausting. It, yeah, <laughs> and, and I give all the credit to my coders. <laughs> Because I, it's it's tedious, um, and it's and it's difficult because it's subjective. Because you're literally listening to what somebody's saying, and you're deciding what that means for that person in that moment while you're removed from the session. Uh, yeah, and so do you have a do you have uh, multiple coders coding each utterance, and then go for consensus yep. between them? Yep, that's exactly. What yeah, so that's one of the ways that um, researchers deal with uh, subjective ratings is they try to get different people's judgment and then see if they can reach consensus to provide some reliability between them. Uh, exactly what we do. And we've been really lucky. I, I, um, partly we're lucky because we're focused on a treatment like motivational interviewing where the folks out of the University of New Mexico have done an exceptional job of really helping us understand the ways to code. So we use their coding manuals. The M motivational interviewing was developed out of the University of New Mexico. They have manuals that um, essentially tell us what to code. Um, our application from it has been a little bit different because we've been trying to expand a little bit beyond the traditional, um, essentially you code things like reflections, um, you recode things like questions, but then there's other aspects of like, was there an affirmation offered? Like, did the therapist affirm what the client said in a way? And how does that then predict behavior? How does that predict later parts of the session? Um, we've done some work where we're coding things like advice without permission. So there's codes for offering advice with permission and without permission. And one of the important pieces of, of MI, and I'm actually very interested in this aspect specifically now, um, is the idea of advice with permission. So, yeah. So can I give you a suggestion and then the patient or the participant can say yes, or they can say no. Absolutely. And very truthfully, very rarely do people say no. Um, <laughs> but on occasion they do. And you're like, good thing I didn't just tell them to go do that. You know, if you think <laughs> of that, because without having them, because again, then that becomes your team, right? That becomes your partnership is you're saying, Hey, listen, as we've been talking, um, something popped into my mind. Do you mind if I share it with you? And then you offer it to them. And then you have a cool conversation about it. That's a lot more open. Um, and it's, it's a more of a partnership conversation rather than 
expert to client. Um, and mm-hmm. I think there's, and that's where I say there's, there's a fine line because as a therapist, often we do, based on our experiences, have a good sense of what might be in that client's best interest. But us just going to telling them to do that is not going to change them or help them in that way. It, it might help them for a day, um, but not for life. And so by working with them to decide together what options might be available, you literally, so it's advice with permission, affirmations, all of those two specific things, affirmations, there was a study um, that a, a colleague, uh, Tim Apodaca, who I know you know as well, oh, know um, Tim, yeah. yeah, that he published that with college students that were mandated to an intervention for alcohol, um, the one code in MI that seemed to, over and above everything else, predict better outcomes was affirmations. When a therapist offered an affirmation, a supportive statement to the client about changes they've made or congratulations on making that shift, those over and above all the other good MI things we did made a big difference in the session. And so mm, that seems so simple. So simple. Like th- that in the therapy room that you could say, wow, nice work. You made a really big change and that's amazing. I'm impressed. Right. Literally. It doesn't it's seem simple. complicated. <laughs> it's not. And that alone, but think of like how that can lift somebody's spirit and how that can make somebody have more um, confidence in themselves or higher self-efficacy, which is again, a big tenant of what we do in MI is really building that self-efficacy. And so so somebody's belief that they can make changes. Mm-hmm. And supported by somebody they look up to or somebody that they think is an expert. Um, and so the power is still in that room. It's not like we, we the power goes away. You know, I mean, there's always that power differential, you know, where the therapist does have some power in the room. It, it, we learn that as clinicians that you have to be careful about the things you tell your clients and the things that you say. Um But in that, by offering a statement of affirmation, and it could be just one in a session that can change the trajectory of how that session goes. Um, And that's what we've been doing. We've been literally coding sessions for to figure out what are the things that make the most difference. And that's one of them. Um, So affirmations and asking for permission. I I think that those are actually nice take-home messages too, because again, you know, outside of the therapy room, we're all in relationships and we all get frustrated with the behaviors of partners or colleagues or children. And it's kind of nice to sort of be able to hang your hat on some of this um, therapy room stuff, because it really, it really sort of is suggestive of like, how do we get people to do more of what we want and less of what we don't want? Well, we want to be affirming and we want to give them autonomy to say yes or no, or in other words, to ask permission for, to give a suggestion and get, in other words, ally with them as partners against a problem. Um, And that's certainly something that I work with couples in the therapy room on doing more collaborative work and more affirming work with one another um, to get their relationship to a better place. And it's very cool to see that bearing out in the MI research in the therapy room. Yeah. And it's helpful for me as a trainer because it helps me know which directions to take my trainings in. Right. And so I think um, I love that I've been able to kind of create a research career where I'm not only developing and testing MI based interventions, but I'm doing the second part of the research, which is now examining those very specific interventions and those sessions and sort of breaking them down in a way that helps me know what worked, what didn't work, um, and how do I better train therapists or what offer, what things can I offer to therapists in a way that will make their job easier or more successful. Um, and so, you know, I think 
that line of research is is still growing. I think it's it's challenging because of that subjectivity of you and I hearing the same thing. We may have very different opinions of what we heard based on what was said before and the way we interpreted that. Um, but those meetings that we have then to come to agreement, if you will, on those types of things has really helped us um, become better at coding, but also then better coders help me become a better trainer. And so it's, it's this, it's an, it kind of like fuels itself. It's like a cycle in some ways. That's very cool. So what, what do you have in your basket of active grants? What are, what are sort of the main projects that are um, on your desk these days? <laughs> Got a few things going on. Um, so I, I'm still doing a lot of the process research. So we have a number of studies of that are ongoing, um, working with HIV positive men um, in different communities that um, are also heavy drinkers. And so these individuals we have developed an alcohol intervention for um, and targeted really trying to help um, folks make some shifts in their um, drinking behaviors, mainly because it has the potential to impact their HIV progress and meds and stuff. And so um, we actually have run one study completely and we're publishing some papers on what we learned from that, or we're actually writing the papers right now. Um, so that's one line of the process stuff. We have a couple other projects where, um, I've been a collaborator on some non-college student, um, process studies. So same idea, like people who are 18 to 24 years old that didn't go to college, um, that are heavy drinkers, brief intervention with them to understand how those might be different than what college students might be experiencing and how those sessions work differently. Um, and then I have a couple other projects that are actually intervention-based still. So I have a, a new grant that I'm working on that is working to integrate a brief motivational intervention with a brief prolonged exposure intervention for veterans in primary care that have PTSD and alcohol use. And so, you know, in my head, that's been like my dream project. And I mean that in the most positive way, because I wish people weren't experiencing those two things together. Um, yeah. But we know that the work for helping folks that have PTSD, alcohol is usually such a big piece of that. And they're just right because they may drink to sort of manage some of the symptoms of the post-traumatic stress disorder. Exactly, and so I've just been surprised that um, we haven't really tackled that as an integrated intervention. And so, actually, our first kickoff meeting is Friday, and we're going to integrate two standalone interventions. One's the MI intervention that I've been using for all sorts of different stuff, and another one is um, out of some fo out of a woman out of the uh, out of Georgia who developed this brief prolonged exposure intervention for veterans in primary care. And so we're hoping this, this will be a successful project. If it is, um, after the pilot studies and all the, the fun parts of the research, um, we may have a really nice package that would be a five session intervention for folks that are drinking heavily and have PTSD. And right now we're, we're going to test it in veterans, um, with some veterans, but we're also, there's lots of applications. You think of college counseling centers for folks that experience trauma, um, you know, other folks that have issues around PTSD, even when you think of like natural disasters and those sorts of things too. So um, I'm super excited about that because I, I think honestly, from the day I stepped foot into my postdoc, that was one of the things I always wanted to do was work with folks yeah. that have trauma and have alcohol stuff. Um, and then oh, we're, it's such important work. It's yeah. And it's, 
I'm hoping that it goes very well. <laughs> um, and then the only other stuff I'm doing that is um, not really grant funded, um, but you and I've talked a little bit about is I've started working with the athletic department um, at my school and have been really, really fortunate to um, have been trusted by uh, an athletic department to do some training with their coaches on motivational interviewing skills. And so last year we launched a, um, a new education protocol, if you will, at our university where I did trainings with all the athletic administrators, staff, training room staff, coaches um, on using MI skills and then a little bit about alcohol um, with the goal of maybe helping these coaches have more open and um, supportive conversations with their athletes around difficult conversations, alcohol being one of them. And then I've been doing alcohol training and education interventions with all the teams. So last year I met with every athletic team um, for a group intervention, met with every coach and athletic trainer um, for these these things. And then this year we're, we're shifting it a little bit so that I'm going to do more of, I'm training peer counselors, peer athletes to meet with their fellow athletes to deliver a brief alcohol intervention to students um, rather than me being the person who has to do it. So more of a train the trainer model. Right. I mean, you're, you're in such a powerful position, I think, to extend MI to athletic departments and, and because you have such a strong background there and, and such a strong skill set in MI. That's That would be such a cool direction for you to be going and kind of you have a lot of directions (laughs) I do I have have a a couple directions but but and honestly they're all connected and they're all like exciting and fun for me I don't look at it as um like over okay sometimes it feels overwhelming but in reality (laughs) um some of the opportunities that we have in athletics I think are groundbreaking and my athletic director has been really on the cutting edge of trying to push this um through our conference offices, because I think he realizes that the student athletes that are undergraduate students nowadays are very different than maybe you and I were, you know, when we were student athletes a few decades ago. (laughs) Um, I would not have considered myself a student athlete, but anyway. (laughs) You were still, you had to still get up for practice every morning. Um, I used to row crew. Nadine was a much stronger athlete than I am. Although I have very fond memories of us training for a couple of half marathons there. Exactly. <laughs> during so, our postdocs. Right. Because that seemed like a good idea to do, right? Like yeah, you're, you're not time. working enough. Let's go train for a half marathon at the same time. But I, it was a stress release. It was actually. And and you, those are the types of things. If I was working with somebody that was struggling with making choices, I'd be like, so what ways can you reduce your stress besides going out and drinking? You could train for a half mm-hmm. marathon, right? Find a good friend to go for a long run with. Yeah. <laughs> and you t- solve all the world's problems on the run too, right? That's right. So Nadine, can I ask you for permission to link our listeners um, through our webpage to your website or, or provide your email address if they're interested in finding out more about your amazing work? Absolutely. I'd be happy to um, have anybody be in touch with me. And um, I love the idea of this podcast getting out to folks that maybe aren't exposed um, to some of these treatments, if you will, um, but also hearing about them in a different way that, that really, yeah. you know, maybe hopefully gets a few people excited about wanting to find some opportunities to do some of this work in the future. Absolutely. And see, folks, when you ask for permission, you often get a positive response. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. (laughs) Well played. All right, Nadine, thank you so much for coming on Psychologists Off the Clock and sharing your amazing wisdom and your very cool research with us. Um, We'll link to all your stuff. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. You guys have been awesome. Thank you. 
thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute.